All right, so we are continuing here in the foundations of discipleship in community. Some of the foundational tools of what is our church all about? What do we truly, authentically live on? And if you are new with us, something you, I think you're going to want to know is we're authentic. We are not here to play games. We are not here to check the box. We're not here to try to feel and be religious and, oh, we checked the box on Sunday. We did some nice religious activities. Blech. No. No, thank you. I've been around church my whole life, and, and that stuff makes me want to vomit. I want a real relationship with God, period. And so <laughs> that's what we're going after. So what you're hearing in these messages in this fall series is the stuff, and that's part of why we're passionate. We just go so long with it. It's like, oh, we got, we got to cut this down a little bit. But it's like this is the stuff that brings life. This is the stuff that brings authentic relationship with God to where, you know, I'm, I'm 43, been in the church a whole life, and I am more excited about God than ever. We're not burned out, we're burning, because Jesus is real, and he wants to be more and more real. doesn't matter how real he is, there's always more real, because he is infinite, he is eternal. And so we are going through foundations of discipleship in community, these things that Jesus himself taught to bring us more alive in him. And today we're going to talk about the greatest commandment. I mean, so we, we started the series, and, and the first tool that we were looking at is all about the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news? And so we spent some deep time in Mark 1, 14 and 15, where Jesus talks about the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, right here within reach, so repent and believe. In the last couple of weeks, we've been digging into these rhythms of life. What are those healthy rhythms of life that God has created us for and Jesus modeled so that we don't burn out and get exhausted, even though that's a common thing in our culture? How do we continue to bear sustainable good fruit? So these are deep and core things. And today we're going to get to what is famously uh, known as, as the great commandment or the greatest commandment. A guy walks up to Jesus and, and just flat out asks him. This is Matthew 22, 36. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? That's an important question. The law means that's the summary, essentially, the summary of the whole, what we would call the whole Old Testament. So in the same way that Jesus summarized the gospel in Mark 1.15, this is another big summary question. Essentially, Jesus is being asked, can you please summarize the whole Old Testament? What's the greatest commandment? What's the essence of the law? Another way to put it is, what's the most important thing in life? I mean, this is a Jewish mindset. We gotta get in for a moment asking this question. The law is life. The commands are life. So this guy's trying to say, Jesus, would you summarize what is life all about? And I want us to, to be careful for a moment because as you know, good evangelical Christians that know we're, we're saved by grace and not by works so that anyone could boast. It's not by what we do. We don't earn our salvation in any way. We are saved by grace through faith by the finished work of Christ on the cross. But that, at times, we take that too far. Oh, the laws of the Old Testament, we ignore the laws. 
the laws and commands of God throughout the entire Bible carry the heart of God and are the action steps of how we experience more of the kingdom. So as we hear this question, we need to make sure that we don't oh, dismiss, oh, those little laws here and there and stuff, we don't, we don't follow those anymore, so that's not, that, this question is not important to me. No, let's take the Psalm 1 mindset. When we hear this question, what is the most important law? Or what's the greatest commandment in the law? When we think of the law, let's go to Psalm 1, which again is a big picture summary you know the introduction? Remember guys writing an essay in high school? You write your introductory paragraph that kind of gives you the, what it's all about. Psalm 1, not coincidentally, as the first prayer in the psalm book or in the, the prayer book, the hymnal book, the praises of God's people, not coincidentally, it's a summary about the power of God's law. Let's go to it real quick. Because it's important to make sure we're coming with the right mindset to this question that Jesus has asked. So in Psalm 1, and for time's sake, I'm going to just go 1 and 3. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. The law. And on God's law, he meditates day and night. So we would probably translate more that currently into God's word. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the word of God, the law of God. On his law, his word, he meditates day and night. And what's the outcome? That one is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Circle that in your Bible right there. I want to be that guy. In all he does, he prospers. In everything you do, you prosper. I mean, that, that is God's will for your life right here in Psalm 1-3. In everything you do, you prosper. How did you get to that point? Delighting in the law of God. Delighting in the ways of God the word of God, the commands of God. When those things become your delight, you shoot out roots that grab onto the streams of the living water of the Holy Spirit so you don't even wither when it's hot and you bear fruit when you're supposed to. Everything you do prospers. But look back and see, that's from the law of God gets us to that place. So the laws and commands of God, it's the word of God. Those are the action steps that help us experience more of God's goodness, more of God's kingdom. So with that mindset, and that's very, very important, because I've heard Christians dismiss this in a way. It's like, well, he asked about the greatest commandment in law. Like, well, you know, we don't live in the law any anymore. It's like, okay. For everything I just said, that's a wrong mindset. <laughs> The word of God is eternal. The laws of God carry the heart of God. The commands of God show us how to put into practice his kingdom in our lives. So when this person comes and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
this person is trying to get Jesus to summarize what is life all about? How do we focus all the truth and the promises and the words of God and the commands and, and the laws? Can you boil that down to its essence so that we can make good investments in our life? And Jesus says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So to boil it down and just try to put some very simple language on it, Jesus' answer to the question of really what's the most important investment we can make in life, Jesus says relationships. Loving God and loving others as yourself. That is the first and greatest commandment. That is the essence of the law. It would be said later in the New Testament that the, the, the law and the prophets, and Jesus said this himself and it's picked up by the apostles, are summed up in this. The law and the prophets. That's the idea of, that's the whole Old Testament. The essence of God's word is summed up in this. Love God, love others. In other words, life is all about relationships. And if you want to put the Psalm 1 picture on that person who prospers in all that they do as they follow God, as they follow God's ways, his truth, his law, as they come under his lordship and let God's law reign because it's for our good, I think a great summary right here is this. Rich relationships are true prosperity. That's a summary of what Jesus is saying. That rich relationships, loving God, loving others, having those rich relationships, that is you becoming that Psalm 1 person that follows God's law and lives in the true prosperity that God has for you. It's rich relationships. And so our question for today, as we're looking at some foundational tools, is so how do we invest then toward these rich relationships, the relationships of loving God with everything that we have, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then relationships with ourselves and others, Jesus said. So we want to look to the life of Jesus. As always, he is our mimetic exemplar, as you might say, or our example to imitate Jesus' life itself and his teaching is our example. He is showing us the gospel in action. He's showing us the way of life that God created us for. And so we're going to look today again to the life of Jesus and then his teaching and how he says, hey, the life that I'm modeling is for you. And what we're going to see is that the, bi the biggest investment we can make towards rich relationships that are true prosperity is that we can have intentionality. We all know this in life. Where we invest is where we will see a reward. We, and it's foolishness to believe or expect otherwise. You cannot expect to have a rich relationship with God if you're investing nothing in God. You cannot expect to have a rich and full marriage if you are not investing. You cannot expect to have great relationship with kids or friends or coworkers or boss if you're not investing there and letting God heal and transform and grow 
you in those areas. The Bible does say what you reap or sow in is where you will reap. That's just a law, that's a spiritual law of the universe that God created. Is a reality where you invest in is where you see the reward. And so Jesus is teaching us to be wise investors in saying that the most important we can investment investment we can make is in relationship where you learn to love God, you invest everything with God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because that is the most valuable thing in the universe is your relationship with God. To be rich in relationship with God is to be truly prosperous. So Jesus is going to model this. And between today and next week, we're going to look at how Jesus actually intentionally invests time, effort, and energy in in putting priority on relationships in what quite simply we could label as relationships that are up, in, and out. And so we can throw up that, that picture real quick if I've got one. If not, I know it's in your lift notes. This is a simple tool, a discipleship tool where Jesus invested relationally up, in, and out, and we're going to see he absolutely commands us to do the very same. That up relationship that Jesus models and teaches is about that intimate, vibrant, personal, powerful, present relationship with God. You are created for intimacy with God. We know that, but that's what it's all about. And then those in relationships are Jesus modeled investing in a relatively small number of life-giving, edifying, empowering, encouraging, what you might call community. And then Jesus modeled an incredible heart to invest out into the lost, broken world, to be that light of the world, to be that salt, to carry that message of salvation, healing, and redemption out into the world. And what is so fascinating as you get into the life of Jesus is you see Jesus investing so intentionally in these things. Jesus being the wisest investor of us all, modeling for us and teaching us to do the same. And so today we're really simply going to just dwell on that up portion of the relationship and what it looks like for Jesus to model investing upward in that relationship with the Father, and then how he taught it specifically. Before we go in, any further? We good? Okay. All right. Well, let's look at up then. So what we mean by up, pretty simple. And again, got to give credit to Mike Breen, our mentor here, who developed just these simple pictures to help us remember more information than we could without them. But it's a very simple concept. Jesus invests upward in personal, powerful, vibrant, intimate relationship with the Father. But what's so ridiculous about it to me is that he says, yes, and the kind of intimacy I'm demonstrating with the Father, that's what you're made for too. It's unbelievably precious, good, beautiful news about our soul's longing to be with God and what is actually possible. Luke 5, 16, we looked at that last week when we were looking at the the rhythms of life that Jesus modeled, and it's such a provocative picture where in the midst of a revival breaking out, Luke says, but Jesus would often withdraw 
to lonely places and pray. And Luke is painting this picture of even Jesus himself seeking alone time with the Father. He's seeking that up relationship. He's investing in and cultivating that intimacy with the Father from which he lives. Communion with God is the starting place of life, and Jesus models it. He was in constant communion with the Father, and he spoke of the Father with such intimate, familiar terms. He was constantly praising the Father, constantly in prayer to the Father, and we see the result is there is power from the Father. And that's the fundamental element of his life. Sometimes you gotta look a little bit harder than what Jesus is known for because people love to focus on the miraculous power. But if you hear the words of Jesus, he talked about the intimacy with the Father. He modeled getting alone to be with the Father. He talked about how he heard from the Father. He saw what the Father was doing. As John 5, 5.19 said, he says, the Son only does what, I see, what he sees the Father doing. Listen to how close that is. Imagine your own life. Could you make that claim? I only do what I see the Father doing. And that's how close in intimacy Jesus himself as the Son was walking with God. He modeled a fellowship with God, a closeness that the world has never seen. I mean, who else could make such a claim? I only do that which I see the Father doing. Yet... And this is where it gets mind-blowing. He claimed that that's the kind of intimacy with the Father that you're made for. Listen to Jesus' own words in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So there's that obedience that is the love language of God. So that's even where you see kind of the laws coming in, the laws of God, the commands of God, the word of God. Those matter. In fact, they demonstrate our love for God. We're not earning God's love here, but we demonstrate God's love language. Our obedience demonstrates our love for God. To claim that we love God and do nothing, Jesus says, ain't going to cut it. You're a liar, he says later. It's just strong words. And that what Casey was just talking about is something that is true for any love relationship. So, you know, if, if we, in our marriage, if I just do whatever the heck I want and just, well, I know he loves me, we are not going to have a very strong, deep, or connected relationship. And the same, that same principle is with God as well. If we're just going to do whatever we want and not live in obedience, then we're not going to have that deep connection that intimately cares about him. And then you have the flow back and forth of the love and the communion as you walk together in intimacy and closeness and um, in that love and in that, yeah, just, just an intentional obedience and communion. So obedience isn't a, it's not a dirty word. You know, um, 
Obedience in some ways has become, in our culture, a dirty word. Oh, I'm a slave. I'm, I'm obedient. And it's, you know, it's not the kind of term you want to use with your, with husband and wife. You need to be obedient to me. <laughs> I tried that once. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's our Lord. He's, he's our good, he's our good and faithful father. And if we want to live in the fullness that he has for us, then we need to walk in obedience. And sometimes there are processes for things that we, our hearts aren't there for. And you know what? We can go to the throne of grace because he is the God of grace and this is the gospel of grace. So if there's a process and we're not there yet, we, commune, we talk to him about that. God, I need you to change my heart. I need you to change my desires. I need you to transform my mind. And we can count on him to do that and to come, when we come to him, in that process, it's a beautiful thing where we don't need to feel ashamed or dirty because where we're not at, we don't ever need to feel ashamed or dirty or like the Holy Spirit is convicting us and we, and we should feel bad about that. When, he, when the Holy Spirit highlights for us something that he wants to change in our hearts or in our mindsets, it's because he loves us so much and he wants so much more for us. And he wants to pour out his presence in, in, in a much greater way. He wants to free us from any areas that we live in captivity, but there's not supposed to be a shame there. And the, the obedience is out of that, where we take, the, we take those steps that he leads us to, you know, moment by moment, day by day. But I feel like the, um, the part that I feel like God wants to highlight is that obedience isn't perfection. It's a process. Just like with our own children, when they're learning, it's not, oh, Paxton, you're so bad. You didn't do it perfectly, but I told you about it last night. I told you about it. It's a process. I would never do that. It's a process where he's holding our hands and we're talking about it and we're processing. And there's so much grace and there's so much love and we just adore him. And we love his little personality. And it's the same with God. He absolutely loves us and adores us. And, you know, I, I personally, I've experienced this and so have my kids and so is Casey. God giggles at us. He's not pointing the finger in shame. He... he, he he just smiles at us. We're his treasures. And as we walk it with him and as we, I, I mean, I don't mean he's laughing at us. I mean, he takes great delight in us. When we don't get things perfectly, he's not looking at us to scold us. He takes great delight in us. He takes great delight as we, when we fall down and we get back up again and he, we grab his hand to pull us back up again. There's no shame in being dirty because our knees got dirty and we made a mistake or we didn't pull out of it perfectly. That's what he's there for. He's a father. There's a reason why we're referred to as children of God. He's a father. He's a good father. He's the best father. Imagine the best earthly father you could ever think of in the world and how they treat their children, how they love their children, how, how that father mentors their children, how they walk with their children day in, day out. Well, you know what? The best father on, in the whole earth is considered evil compared to how good our heavenly father is. Yeah, I think it's a great uh, reminder that obedience always follows the grace of God, the love of God. Even in this picture of the question to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? The law came, the commands of God came as those 
love language acts of obedience in response to what God has already done, in response to the grace of God, in response to the love of God. Like when God gave the law in the Old Testament, that was all a res- the, that was the call to respond to the love that God has already done to save you. He chose the people of Israel. He saved, redeemed, delivered them, and they had done nothing to earn it. And as he brought them, that's the great salvation picture, salvation, healing, deliverance in the Old Testament. It's this picture of grace. God chose us. We didn't choose him first. He chose to save, heal, and deliver a people. And now that he's done that incredible agape love, gracious work in response in order to maintain that relationship, stay in relationship, there is obedience. There's ways on our part in, our, in the relationship to stay with him instead of running away from him. So all the commands of God, like we said, are the action steps of obedience to stay with him, to cultivate that deeper relationship in response to what he's already done. And so that's the whole picture of the Bible. It's the same grace-filled, loving picture of God initiating from the beginning, and our response is obedience. And so Jesus deep into his relationship with his disciples here, where he has made the love of God known in a thousand and one different ways, is now talking to them about their response of obedience. And in John 14, 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. So what is absolutely extraordinary is that as Jesus himself modeled a fellowship with God that the world was never, had never seen before, he then teaches his disciples and says, you're made for that too. The Father and I, and a little bit later in this same teaching in John 14 and 15, Jesus says the Holy Spirit, we will come, listen to the language, we will make our home, our dwelling place, The dwelling place of God is with you. I mean, if there's any question about how close, what kind of relationship you are made for, Jesus said a degree of intimacy that is unbelievable. Really, like it doesn't make sense. It, it, like until you encounter it and experience it, Jesus is saying the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit will dwell, will make their home, make their dwelling, take up residence with you, in you. I mean, how more how intimate, personal, close can you get? Jesus is describing this up relationship, this communion with God, an intimacy, a connection with God that that can barely even be comprehended. It's got to be experienced. Like, how, how can God dwell with me, within me? That's unbelievable. The God of the universe. And that's part, though, of once you've experienced it and encountered it on some level, it becomes... How deep can this rabbit hole go? How, how, how true can this be? How personal can God get? How present, how precious and powerful can this relationship with God be? 
And, and let me give you one example. And I, it's, it's been fun. I've started to catalog these things and make a file on my computer of these various pictures of marker points of God showing up and showing off how personal, powerful, and present he can be in our lives. And it's neat that it, it's growing. And we can look back on these things and, and in some sense not need them anymore. I mean, we look forward to more, but God has become so personal, powerful, and present that I don't need, need proof anymore that God exists. I mean, like, when I hear these arguments on the Internet, which are important in a, in a way, like apologetics that, like, God exists, it's like that's foolishness in a way. Like, he's so beyond that. He's so personal, powerful, and present. He, he, he wants to encounter you in such a way where you don't need to argue about whether or not he exists, let alone how much Jesus is real and alive and personal, powerful, and present. So let me tell one quick story. I've told this one before in the past, but this was one that I felt like, hey, let's do it again today as a reminder of Jesus' words that God himself is going to be with you in such a way it's appropriate to use the language, he's made his home with you. He dwells with you. And this is where we get that language like he wants each one of us to feel like we must be his favorite because of how intimately and closely and personally he dwells with each one of us. And so there was a, a number of years back when Don's grandfather uh, was, was 95 years old, 96 years old, and, and he was a, a father figure to her and, and her two sisters and just an incredible uh, pillar of our family, of her family growing up, um, just a, a beautiful representation of the, the father heart of God in, in many ways. And I think he was 95 when he had a stroke. He was in like unbelievably wonderful health, exercising every day, driving, driving. <laughs> that, that got a little sketchy, but mentally sharp. <laughs> Uh, at 95, and, and the cook of the family, and, and he, had a, he had a stroke, and they immediately, like, call in hospice, and it was weird, a weird experience, because, like, the assumption was, okay, he's going to die, and it's, you know, 95, he's, he's going, and the feeding tube, he couldn't swallow based on the stroke, and then the feeding tube was, was clogged, and, you know, the healthcare professionals at that point, bless their hearts, but they're, they're, the hospice was called in, and what we experienced was they're trained to comfortably let him die. They're ready. Their job is like, yep, this guy's had a long life. It's time to die. Give him the, the stuff so he doesn't feel much and let him pass. Yeah, no, no miracles at that point. Not even, uh, not even <laughs> good health care because his feeding tube clogged, and they were just like, well, his body's rejecting the food internally, it's time for him to die. And my little pit bull of a wife uh, had a good sense from both the spirit and, and, and practical wisdom that like it, the feeding tube clogged. Why does that mean he's automatically just dying? His, the food is yeah, the, the, it was like a dry powder that you didn't mix very well and it got clogged in a tube. Really? It's just time for him to die? It's and body shutting down. Yeah, body shutting down, time to die. And so... With not much time on the internet, Google came through. And some friends and doctors. And we found out that, hey, you can put Coca-Cola in a feeding tube if there's a little clog because they didn't mix the powder properly, and it can un undo the clog. 
And so we talked and she asked me, hey, would you go to the store? It's the middle of the night. Would you go to the store and would you buy some Coca-Cola? And let's just see, let's just see. Actually, no, she wasn't just saying, let's just see. She's like, I got a fire in my belly. I know they just didn't mix the powder right. None of this BS about it's just his body shutting down. I was like, all right, let's go. So I went to this like little 7-Eleven, yeah. I just, I want to share kind of like the atmosphere and the spirit of what was going on. We believe in resurrection power. I don't care if my grandpa's 95 years old and he has a stroke and that's considered normal. That's not, it. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, oh, well, you just get old and then you just, you know, get sick and then you're just meant to suffer and then you die. That's, he didn't die so that we could just live with all of the negative things in the fallen world, all the sin and all the sickness. He died so that we could have abundant life. Abundant life isn't being stuck with a feeding tube, laying on a, on a bed during the last days of your life. So if that happens, it happens, but I'm, gonna, but I'm gonna fight for resurrection power. His spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in me, and I fought for my grandpa for raising up from that bed until the moment that he passed into heaven. And sometimes there's a peace that God gives you. Like there, actually, I will say on the last day, I, I fought, <laughs> I was fighting like a pit bull, you know, to the point, because these people, they're trained to, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, they're trained to let, to, there is a spirit of death on many hospice facilities. They just are trained to let people die. There is nothing that I encountered with the very kind, sweet people that were helping my grandpa. There is nothing that I encountered and not an ounce of hope. And they treated me like the enemy. They treated me like the enemy, and my family was upset at me. Gosh, Dawn, she's so, why can't she just, you know, you know, leave it to the professionals? I'm sorry, but the, I don't care what the professional says. I have friends who are doctors. I actually contacted a good friend of ours who's a, um, who's a doctor, and he said, just put Coke in the tube. It happens all the time. It doesn't mean his body's shutting down. That's a lie, and that's what I felt from God, and then I got multiple confirmations from multiple doctors, and ev- but the, what I want to paint here is everybody was against me. Everybody was against me. They were, I was basically painted as the evil one that wasn't just letting him comfortably die. Well, I'm sorry, but I believe in resurrection power, and as long as you're here, I'm going to contend for it. So as he goes into this story, there was such a weight to when God spoke as he goes forward to share this. And I just wanted you to know how potent the spirit was and how important this way that God spoke to us was. So I go on this little mission and it's a heavy moment where her grandfather, who's like a father figure, as she pointed out, is being told he's just dying. Don't fight for him. Don't, don't, don't cause, don't ruffle the feathers here. Just let death 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 take over. And so there's a huge question in the moment. You know how she feels about it. There's a huge question in the moment of like, is God with us? What does that look like? How could we know that in the highs and the lows, in the victories and the storms, is God with us? I think that's 
one of the most fundamental human questions. And it has everything to do with this message today about how we're made for God to dwell with us, to make his home inside of us. Jesus is saying there's an answer to that question of is God with us? And the answer is a resounding yes. I'm always with you. I am present in ways that you don't always feel but are mind-blowingly real, more than you even understand. And so now in ways the great joy of life, the great challenge of life is to tap into and learn and grow in just how present God actually is with us in everything, in the midst of everything. And so it's like you know, one o'clock in the morning and, we, and I, I think it took one of my sons with us and we start driving around the, down the hill and they lived in La Jolla, Mount Soledad. So we drive down the hill and we start looking for any place that's open. And there's like, we, we stop in here not open. We stop in there, not open. Stop in there, not open. And it's like one in the morning, so I believe it was like a CVS or a Walgreens. So this is like our third or fourth try. And we walk in, and, and, uh, and we're, in a, we're in a rush, though, right? Because it's like maybe grandpa's life is on the line. Could we save it? <laughs> and so we're like, where's the Coke? Where's the Coke? And I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not a big soda drinker, so I don't like typically have like the, you know, the line of sight on the soda. So I'm like, where's the sodas? And they point us over there. So we run over to the to the you know the case the refrigerator and we look at the door of the soda case refrigerator and literally at my eye level about to like punch me in the face are these two bottles of coca-cola if you can't read that far on the right it says casey k a s e y with a k with a k and on the left is her grandfather's name, Henry. They're literally the front two in, in the aisles. You know how they you know, stack them all and there's like 15, 20 back. They are at eye level and they're the front two in the row sitting side by side as I'm panicked saying, you know, where is the soda? Really, I'm saying, where is God? Henry and Casey. And, and even to the point of how personal God is, my name has been spelled my whole life wrong by everybody except my parents. I'm always, you know, C-A-S-E-Y, like, just because that's more common. But so for my entire life, like, I am used to, like, when I'm, you know, not known somewhere, it's C-A-S-E-Y. And I think I would have been fine with that in this moment, but God's like, but you're known by me. I know your name. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was unbelievably personal. And that's where it made me feel like, well, I must be his favorite. But I know theologically that's not correct. He likes you too. And that's the point. We're all his favorite. That was, and to make a long story short and not go too far down that road, the soda worked. Not surprisingly, the pit bull was right. We took those sodas homes, <laughs> took those sodas home, and, and we put them in, and it cleared up the feeding tube because it was human error, not God's will. And that's something to wrestle with. Human error was going to kill her grandpa, not God's will. No, we have other things to say today. <laughs> so, 
the point of this story is God was with us. And he wanted to show us because in that moment we needed it. We were fighting the family and the medical professionals. And so we needed a loud declaration from God saying, I am with you. I am for you. And watch what I am about to do. And it's, it, it's where this kind of encounter becomes bigger, so much bigger than just this moment and just this situation. It becomes, no, this is who God is. When Jesus says, I'm going to be with you to such a point, I dwell inside of you. What does that even look like? This, where he's going to orchestrate. I mean, how to, statistically, what are the odds of that? It's, it was like the, my fourth try at one in the morning to get Henry and Casey right next to each other at eye level in the front row to where I see it. I mean, come on, is there an engineer in the room? Somebody do me some math of how many Coca-Cola bottles are produced with the name Casey with a K. How many Henry bottles are produced? How many are in San Diego County? How many you know, are in stores that are open at 1 a.m.? How many are sitting next to each other on eye level so I, I see it and they're not in the back row? They're not even in the second row. I mean, the statistics are not good for this happening again. I'll give you 100 bucks if you're going to happen it again because I'm confident I ain't giving you any money. I mean, so it's, it's, it's those things where it's like, oh, you want to talk the statistics of it, it, does God exist? Well, let's look at the math and the statistics. Like, it's so much better than just does God exist. How about he wants you to be his favorite? <laughs> He wants to be so personal, powerful, and present that his existence is not the question. It's just how, 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 how real can he be in my everyday life? When I call, he answers. He's, he's moving and working. He is so present with each and every one of us. He wants it to be mind-blowing. That's that intimacy that Jesus spoke of. And if you haven't had your mind blown yet by God, just keep pursuing him. Jesus, the word of God says, seek me and find me. You will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Just keep seeking him. I bet he's already there in a thousand and one different ways. A lot of the times is we've just got the blockage on our end. You know, we've got the human error on our end that's just keeping us from seeing how he's actually with us already and has been our entire life with his grace and his goodness and his kindness and his mercy. And he can even take you back through things and say like, see, I was there. I was there too. I, I, show, I promise you I was there. Let me show you how I protected you there. I provided you for there. I was personal and present there. And then life becomes this glorious adventure of childlike wonder of, wow, how real can this <laughs> relationship get? And I think the answer is, there is no limit. Because God is eternal. And Jesus said it like this in John 17, 3. Eternal life is simply knowing God. And the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. So those kind of encounters that were so personal to us, this is the main point. They're not the finish line, they're the starting point. So if you haven't had that encounter yet, that's fine. Seek him and you'll get it. And then, but the point is, and then when you have those kind of encounters that are so wildly personal, 
It, it just blows your mind. The whole point of that, though, is that's just the starting point. There's always more. Eternal life is knowing God. So for all of eternity, there will be an increasing measure of knowing God intimately in ways that continue to blow your mind. And the great news of the gospel is, and that starts now. And I don't really believe or see any place in scripture where Jesus puts a limit on how real that can be. In fact, he puts miraculous, <laughs> uh, open-ended declarations on it. That your eternal life starts now, knowing God, now. That's why Paul prays those kind of prayers. His whole, I mean, the, the way that Paul prays all the time is these crazy, big, open-ended, Ephesians 1's a great example. He prays in verse 16 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that you can know how high and how deep and how wide and how, the other one, breadth? <laughs> it's in 4D. Yeah. And you only know it in 1D or 2D or 3D or 4D. And that, and there's always more is Paul's point. And so that's what makes us hungry, no matter how much we've encountered of God. It's the childlike, humble hunger that says, and there's always more. I'm just getting started. And if that's not your mindset, you're going to be bored in eternity. It's all about knowing him in increasing measure. have to be done now? Did I say finish no. Okay. Uh, I felt like the Holy Spirit was pointing out right now grapes, fruit, grapes and sour grapes. And when we hear a testimony of what God has done for someone else or what God is doing, that testimony is the spirit of prophecy, the spirit of God wants to do it again in our lives. So when we hear something like that, or when you know, we hear a story like this, if there's ever something in our hearts that is, I want to say, pursuing an end goal, and not feeling adequate in the process, like you're not complete until you have God showing up in that way, I, I want to encourage us and caution us to pull back to have the Holy Spirit help us not to despise a process, not to despise even small beginnings as we're learning to hear him, because if we're looking at somebody else's fruit and saying, I want huge grapes like that, why am I not raising the dead? Why am I not doing this? Then we will fully miss out on actually cultivating maybe the smaller grapes that we have that are in process that need to be watered and nurtured, and we need to partner with him, and they will keep growing and growing. But when we look at other people's grapes and get upset because we're not there, because we want works that big, we want fruit that big, then what we do is 
we, in a sense, stop growing our grapes and they become sour. And so one of my favorite, uh, a phrase that I really enjoyed that I believe Chris Vallotton said was, or no, actually Bill Johnson, I don't remember. They all say it, I think, not to despise the day of small beginnings. Because we're all, we're all, hmm? It's a verse. It is? Yeah. Small beginnings? Yeah, that's a verse. What I is it? I don't know where it is. Well, <laughs> that's why I like it. But it, we're, we're all in process. And so it's so important to bring worship and praise into that process. Not to look at where we're at with, oh, I'm not there yet, I'm not this, and I'm not that. The devil is utterly thrilled when we do that. He's thrilled because we're partnering with the enemy instead of partnering with God. And, and we're, we're taking ourselves out in a sense. When, he, when God wants his, re, I mean, it's pretty crazy. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us lives in us day by day, moment by moment. And it is a process. We are made new. We have a spirit within us. But his word says that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So let me ask you, if we focus on all of the 300 degrees that we haven't been transformed, that haven't been transformed yet, what happens? We come to a standstill. Thanks and praise brings his presence. There's, a, there's also a stewardship as we praise him for what he's done, as we live in gratitude, as we praise him for all that he's done, as we praise him for the beginnings that we have, as we praise him for a grape that may be small. God, thank you. Thank you for transforming my life. Thank you for how far you have taken me. Thank you that I have your promise, your spirit as a seal that you are going to bring this good work to completion. And in any way that I'm not believing that you're going to bring it to completion, there is a lie from the devil if I am not living with hope that your promises are true, that you are who you say you are. So it's really important. I see a picture of savoring the sweetness of the grapes no matter how tiny they are. Thanks and praise, savoring that sweetness. He is so real. And I want to give us some practical tools for this up that we're talking about, which is a connection to his presence. Um, worship. Always worship. I can feel really, really stressed. Yesterday, you know, one of my son had, had, my son had a difficult issue going on that was just major spiritual warfare, needed major breakthrough, and I wasn't feeling good, and I had a headache, and I just, and I had been just going to battle, and I felt like the Lord just said to me, thanks and praise, thanks and praise. I want you to sing and dance like it's finished. I want you to see it as I see it, and I want you just to usher that in, and we had a whole bunch of people praying, and by the end of the day, he said there was a shift, and um, hold on, let me, need to pull up my notes here. Worship is a huge, huge, it brings breakthrough. Just sing out loud, not just inside. I, I sing inside a lot. I, I connect to his presence a lot in just a silence and breath, but worship out loud. Worship out loud. And I also want to bring something else up that really, really helps. 
Okay, so I'm going to have you do a very quick exercise right now, and you're going to think I'm really silly. I want you to breathe really fast, hunch your shoulders over, and try to connect with the presence of God. Just do it. How's that working for you? Are you connecting with God? Well, guess what? Breath in communion with God is God's idea. Woo! You mean just because Hindu practices and other modalities have stolen something that God created that they don't get to keep it? The church has a history of being afraid of things that God created that the devil has stolen. And they put red crime scene tape. Are we made to watch the devil steal so we can run away in fear? Or are we made to bring the redemption of Christ to the fallen worlds? Breath and communion with God's presence is not a yogi idea. Yes, Psalms, in the Psalms, there's a word called Selah. It's used all over the Psalms, 71 times to be exact. It means to pause in his presence with an implied breath. It was God's idea. Be still and know that I am God. Breath, taking a deep breath, actually According to doctors, and I read a lot of stuff by doctors, it is the most potent controller of your nervous system. That's why when you breathe really fast, it's very hard to connect to the presence of God. God created breath. He is peace. And taking a deep breath, as that word selah demonstrates for us, selah means to take, it means to pause and take a breath, with an implied breath, and it also means to worship. And all those things are wrapped into one. And I use that on a regular basis. You know, I made the mistake last week. I, I used the word uh, yoga when I described the breath and the ex some of the exercises that I did, but I'm not doing yoga. God, uh, God invented breath. I, I use that term as just kind of like a I don't know. It, it basically, that's what our world, it's, it's a, that's a common phrase when it comes to those things. But uh, that was my mistake. I love that what Benny did. Benny calls it, when she does certain strengthening and stretching poses, which belong to God, she calls it holy stretch. Holy stretch. You know, uh, there are many satanic rituals that where they use running where they use holding hands and singing. So does that mean that we say, oh, because a crime scene has happened there, because the counterfeit has happened there, that we're not allowed to use those things? You know, in the history of the church, uh, there were many, there were times when they wouldn't use the piano. Why? Because they used the piano in bars, in bars where they drank alcohol. So they allowed the devil to steal, to steal things that God created. And God created breath. Because it is a potent way for us to both calm our bodies and connect to his presence. That's why the word Selah is in the Psalms 71 times. That after a section of scripture, it'll say Selah. That means pause with a breath. Pause and worship with a breath. And I do that in my room. I just breathe to connect and worship. My 
heart worships. And I did want to clarify from that last week that I'm not doing yoga. What I'm doing has been become, become a commonplace phrase because yoga has become big in our culture. But these are God's ideas. The movement of the body in worship is God's idea. Another thing that brings tremendous breakthrough for me and is a huge form of worship is dancing. And I want to, can you open um, that one? Okay. Okay, the last one. David danced before the Lord with all his might. I don't care if you're a dancer. God says to dance. I guarantee you, you will experience breakthrough. You will experience a breakthrough in his presence. You know, there was a time when the church didn't dance because all the sinners danced. Don't let the, don't let the devil take things. Jesus brings redemption, and now dance isn't a thing nowadays that there's an issue with. But lots of other stuff, like breath, you know, the devil doesn't get to steal breath. Before yoga, breath was I am, and he made breath. It's his. So, practical tools for cultivating his presence, worship, dance, breath, along with the things that we all know, spending time in God's word, singing, singing praises, we already talked about that, praying, yeah, I'm done. He, he's, he's giving me the, the noise, you know, the silent, you're done, <laughs> yeah. That's all. That's all I have to say about that. Straight up. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm going to stand. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song. I will dance a new dance like David.